The following episode of the 9pm edict contains propaganda, strong language, and furries, although the furries are fake. Friday, the 1st of April 2022. The autumn series begins in earnest today. And our first special guest is Evelyn Dueck. She's a lecturer in law and a doctoral candidate at the Harvard Law School. And she's co-host of the Lawfare podcast, Arbiters of Truth. In this episode, it's all about the online information ecosystem. We talk about content moderation. This is a system like that is never going to operate perfectly. It's, um, it's, it's going to fail all the time. We find out why it's a good thing that everyone called Tom was thrown out of a pub. All the Toms that I know are, you know, real jerks, so I totally understand that decision. And we rate the Australian government's skill level in online regulation. Australia, um, you know, is, is, is a, a bit of a fumbling oaf in this, in this area. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the 9pm fake furry dollop of content moderation with Evelyn Duick. Evelyn Duick, welcome. Thanks for your time. No, thanks so much for having me. Now, Arbiters of Truth, the podcast you produce with Quinta Jurassic, is one of my must-listens. The online information ecosystem it covers, so a tiny topic... Please, please expand on that. What's, yeah. what's the pitch? We started more narrowly uh, in our defence. So the, the original pitch was we were going to look at, um, you know, content moderation and platforms in the lead up to the 2020 US election. Um, oh, it was that. a hot happening space. Uh, yeah, exactly. You remember <laughs> that. Um, yeah. uh, back in the, in the good old days. Um, and it turned out, it, it turned out that the US uh, election came and went and we actually didn't solve everything uh, to do with the uh, online information ecosystem. Shocked and uh, surprised to find that there were still outstanding issues to be discussed. Um, and it was originally, again, intended to focus really on disinformation. Um, but as we were thinking about like making this a sustainable, ongoing uh, project, we really just wanted the flexibility to discuss everything and anything to do with what people are saying online and how platforms are dealing with it. Well, we will um, touch upon just a few of those in the next uh, five hours or however long, however long we end <laughs> up talking because <laughs> nothing nothing to talk in, in there about. Look, let's start with the obvious one, I'm afraid, the bad news. The war. We really do have to mention that, I think. And my first observation, as many uh, have suggested... <laughs> Monty Python reference, by the way. Don't mention the war. Do you remember that um, joke? I do remember that joke. Or Faulty Towers, uh, not Monty Python. My bad. It's 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 still um, John Cleese, anyway. That's it. Exactly. I think. Uh, it wasn't, uh, but what I will mention is uh, the same thing this guy mentions. This is from uh, WION, the, no, the World is One News, even though they don't have a... T- anyway, they're in India. This is from the 1st of March. Vowing to rally his country, Zelensky released a series of videos after the invasion. He urged Ukrainians to take up arms and reiterated his own refusal to flee, despite being a top Kremlin target. He has been addressing the citizens from the streets of Kiev to bolster morale and to emphasize that he is going nowhere but will stay to defend Ukraine, putting his skills as an actor to full 
effect, he filmed a string of videos on his phone on the streets of Kiev, calling for national unity and praising the spirit of his countrymen and women. In the propaganda war with Putin, a supposed master of the art with squadrons of trolls at his disposal, Zelensky and his phone camera are emerging as winners. Now that's a month ago. Is Ukraine still winning the propaganda war? I Gosh, say a, yes. That's a big, big question in a oh, lot okay, of ways. Okay. Yeah. So, taking it, taking a step back, I mean, I think one of the things that this whole conflict has emphasised is like how vital these platforms and these information ecosystems are to basically everything. Any, um, any topic of uh, current events is now uh, also a content moderation story, and so we've seen a lot of this play out online, and we've seen many of the good and bad aspects of of the online information ecosystem and, and these platforms at work. I think to a certain extent we've always overstated the the power of the Russian trolls and information operations uh, in the first place. Um, you know, uh, I, I think that you know the idea that they could you know propagandize their way uh, and mind control all of us to believe that this invasion was justified or just or you know uh, something like that was always you know it, it sounds ridiculous when I say that. And so um, I think that it shows that to a certain extent propaganda always will be related somewhat to reality. Like there's real limits into what you can achieve. Um, Isn't that one of the things Joseph Goebbels says? There has to be the truth in there. You build on something people already believe. Oh gosh, I didn't expect to be, uh, you know, co- compared to, to Goebbels uh, on the, on this <laughs> podcast. Uh, I guess I walked straight into that one. Um, <laughs> But I mean, it also, I think, has emphasized the way in which, you know, the power of information, like Zelensky has been a real pro um, yeah. at, at public messaging. Um, and it, you know, one person's propaganda is one person's, you know, uh, just public messaging and, 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 and getting... eternal you know, truth, yeah. Exactly, right? And so is is what Zelensky has been doing a propaganda war or part of a propaganda war? I mean, certainly. It's, it's an attempt to, like, rouse public opinion to his side, but he's been very effective at it. And we might just think that, well, that's, you know, great. Um, but it certainly has grasped people's attention and brought attention to the issue in a way maybe they wouldn't have been paying attention otherwise. What I find intriguing about uh, the information coming from the Ukrainian side is most of what we see, I mean, is tractor-based propaganda. And that Mm -hmm. has become such a huge meme. We're seeing everything to do with with broken-down Russian forces, prisoners who don't know what they're doing. We don't actually see any combat, which is interesting. We just see a ridicule of the enemy. We're not seeing – well, we're seeing – dead tanks with their turrets blown off, but we're, we're not seeing the, the aspects of war that are ugly, at least not in the kind of propaganda that spreads. That seems something kind of different to me. Yeah, I mean, I have to uh, say, you know, I don't do empirical work, so I haven't been doing like a mm. comprehensive review of what's being posted or what's what's, uh, yeah, w- what kind of messaging people are engaging with. I mean, I do well, know clearly that there what is. I see on Twitter yeah. is the universe. That oh, is, obviously, you know, the your reality. Twitter feed is comprehensive and yep. represents uh, and, and the, the entire basis of, universe. Of course, yep. yeah, yep. no, I mean, I think there is quite a lot of graphic content. Uh, I think that, and that, that's a really 
difficult question. I mean, one thing might be that a lot of that content's being removed by platforms. So one of the reasons uh, why you might not be seeing it might be it's being posted, but the platforms are taking it down because, you know, a place like a Twitter feed where you see lots of blood and gore might not be a place that you keep coming back to. Um, but that's a big problem because that could be evidence of war crimes or uh, other offenses um, or illegal conduct. So there's a real legitimate question there of what should we do about that? So I don't know. I mean, you're, you're probably right that... Um, the the official sources uh, in Ukraine are leaning into uh, things that are more likely to rouse public opinion rather than violence and things like that. But I I certainly think a lot of this conduct uh, content is out there, um, and and w- whether or not you know you and I in particular are seeing it. That's true. You can hunt this stuff down. And and, and a friend of mine who used to work in uh, the intelligence services has sort of sent me a little bit of the stuff that's come across his feed. Mm. Um, Tim Graham up in uh, Queensland at the Queensland University of Technology, he posted a fascinating chart the other day. And as always, regular listeners know I link to everything on the podcast website. He tracked the number of accounts that are clearly from Russia and just like everything to boost it on Twitter. And the number of new accounts, like three days before the invasion, suddenly spiked. And we're talking like a factor of 10 or 20 or something, this phenomenal bang. We do, I mean, we did say we shouldn't overestimate the Russian ability at this, but that's coordinating their propaganda arm with what's happening in the field really quite closely. Yeah, um, but then we need to think about, like, real-world effects of that. So, like, obviously that's, you know, that's classic... manipulation of the affordances that platforms provide. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not, you know, uh, creating new messages or deep fakes of Zelensky, although that did happen at one stage, or anything, like, massively Mm -hmm. sophisticated. Uh, It's creating a bunch of accounts to like things and try and boost them uh, higher in the feed. Um, But that's pretty, like, low-hanging fruit in terms of, uh, you know, online information operations. That's the kind of stuff that platforms are getting a lot better at detecting, uh, by the mm. way, uh, they have since they've been on guard since uh, 2016, where if you see a bunch of fake accounts or something like that uh, engaging in coordinated behavior, they're going to be much quicker at, 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 at pulling it down. Um, but yeah, you, you're going to see a bunch of that a bunch of that stuff as well. The question is, like, has it really changed anything or had material effects? Um, before we freak out about that kind of thing of like Russia has uh, created a whole bunch of new accounts, we have to think, well, has that really materially had any particular impact? And I did see uh, yesterday, in fact, uh, some of them are really badly done. I mean, one Twitter account was literally called Throwaway Ack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that guy was calling it in that day. Yeah, just, uh, maybe he was hungry, yeah. wanted to get to lunch and just run out of ideas. <laughs> We've all had days like that. <laughs> exactly. Now, now recently uh, you did an episode uh, titled How Open Source Investigators Are Documenting the War in Ukraine. Now, Nick Waters, he uh, is from Bellingcat, a big open source analysis slash journalism firm. Now, you plural, chatting on that episode, we're talking about how Facebook and Twitter and so on uh, are not exactly transparent uh, when it comes to taking things down. I think anyone who's uh, tweeted something a little bit rude has found that they don't quite understand context and you don't really know what the rules are. Anyway, uh, he did say that 
the fact that Twitter had apologised for deleting some legitimate accounts recently was a like a big move. They actually apologised and said they got it wrong. And then Nick Waters said this. I think they have improved. Genuinely, from what I've seen from compared to, say, 2017, 2018, uh, we are seeing more engagement. We are seeing, I think, improvement. You know, a Twitter's statement that, uh, you know, a mistake had been made in the reinstation of these accounts was really welcome. And I don't think that is something that would have happened, say, like four or five years ago. So that that is very welcome and, and good. But it's still incredibly frustrating because so much of this is regulated by uh, really opaque rules. And to, to kind of like go back to that idea of, of public sphere as a, as a physical space, it's, you know, like being in the pub and discussing with your friends about a particular you know subject, and then the landlord comes over and then kicks you out and maybe every other person called Tom out as well, and then never explains why. You can understand why you'd be a little bit frustrated with it. I thought that observation was spot on. I mean, that is what it feels like. What was your reaction? Because you chuckled there hearing that clip again. Yeah, I mean, just like, obviously, uh, all the Toms that I know, are, you know, <laughs> real jerks. So I totally understand that decision. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's we are living in this ridiculous sort of Kafka-esque reality where we're all so dependent in the middle of this war, like the biggest land war in Europe uh, since World War Two, And we're all like at the whim to a certain extent of some pretty um, either you know, arbitrary or on-the-fly decisions being made in rooms in Silicon Valley. I mean, there was an excellent piece of reporting in the New York Times yesterday or the day before about how even the content moderators themselves are confused because Facebook's changing its rules so often. They can't keep up with, in this evolving situation of what's happening in Ukraine, uh, what Facebook's decisions it's making, whether it's making like, today you can't you can't threaten to kill Putin and uh, t- t- tomorrow you can and then you can't again, right? Like whether that's against its violence and incitement policy. Um, uh, maybe if we, a- d- instead of killing Putin, we suggest killing one of the generals or we, you know. Right, I mean, exactly. Yeah, how does let's, this even work? turn to page 854 of Facebook's rulebook and see exactly what it says about who you can and can't threaten to kill. Um, it, and if it, I can it, add but- to that, you said the decisions are made in Silicon Valley. I mean, Yes, at the top level, but the actual operational decisions are often made in Manila or Costa Rica mm-hmm. or I mean Kenya, I don't know. It, whoever is the cheapest English-speaking or French-speaking or Russian-speaking place to outsource stuff to. Yeah, absolutely. And they paid and- rubbish money and they have four seconds to decide. And often it's not clear whether they even speak the language in which the content is posted or whether they're relying Mm. on Google Translate to tell them what the content says. Um, So this is a system like that is never going to operate perfectly. It's um, it's it's going to fail all the time. Uh, And to, to some, even a system that was, you know, much better designed than that is going to to fail and make mistakes at the scale at which these companies are operating. And you know, the changing rules thing, like. That actually might be good. It might be reasonable to expect companies to be changing and evolving their policies in fast-moving situations. Uh, the the shocking part, the the part that's really uh, sort of makes it so much more more difficult and and has a lot of collateral damages is is that first, um, you know, companies don't really seem to be thinking about this ahead of time and and have a plan for what they're going to do. And second, they don't really communicate those changes very effectively either to their own content moderators or to people like Nick or other people who are relying on platforms uh, and their decisions in, in, in these circumstances. Going back to the pub landlord example, though, 
I mean, a pub landlord doesn't listen to everyone's conversation in the pub unless you are being rowdy and disturbing other people or, you know, generally being a pain to everyone. You're left to have your own little conversation in your group. So why should it be Facebook or Twitter or TikTok's business seeing what you're chatting to your friends about? That's a deep and complicated question. I think one part of it is this can implies ought question, right? So companies, platforms have an ability to moderate content, to regulate content and speech in a way that no other regulator ever has had in the history of time, right? Like governments have had speech rules and some of them way more draconian in Mm. the past um, than we have today. But quite simply, they don't know what Bob said to Sally on the on the street corner, right, most of the time, um, that they've never been able to uh, enforce them uh, at the scale that these platforms are able to. Now, I think there's sort of, we, we can overstate the extent to which platforms are able to enforce their rules. I think often, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're bumbling around and they can't really enforce them at scale or not perfectly, but they can enforce them to a far greater degree than any other regulator has ever had in history. And so then this thing comes like, well, if you can, if you can, you know, shut down people that are saying awful things, uh, you should. <laughs> like, why Why should people be able to say these things on your services if you have the power to intervene? And I think as technology is developed and as the capacity to do that kind of uh, inter- intervention has increased, uh, demands for platforms to do that kind of stuff has increased too. Um, but and and there's really good arguments for that in in some circumstances. Like if you can stop harm occurring, um, in some circumstances, surely you have some sort of responsibility to to take those actions. But the the question that we're all grappling with, that we've been grappling with for a long time, and will continue to grapple with, is where does that line stop? And when do platforms need to take responsibility for it? When do users have to take responsibility for it? And you know, what kind of collateral damage are we willing to accept to things like freedom of expression in asking? platforms uh, to, to shut down some some of the things that people say. How far are we along the journey to understanding what even any of this stuff is about? Because, I mean, you say we've been looking at this for a long time. It really hasn't. It's only been 15 years, 20 years, um, which in historical terms is nothing. Um, are we ten percent of the way of understanding this? Uh, even as I say that, though, it's a continuous journey. Is a journey? I hate the word journey used in this context. Yeah. It's like you know, American Idol. We went on your journey to the thing. Sorry, yeah. I got distracted no, no, there for a minute. It. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the content moderation understanding is the is the friends we made along the way. Um, I I don't think there is like a. <laughs> a state of 100% understanding of these issues. I just don't think we're ever going to get to that. So when you ask me, you know, what percentage are we? I mean, that's an impossible question because there is no 100%. Mm. I think you're totally right, though, that we're only at the very, very beginning. Um, These are such new things. We barely understand what's going on. I mean, it's always amazing to me to remember that Facebook made its community standards public for the first time in 2018, right? Like we've only been in this situation of even knowing what Facebook's rules are for four years. So how could we possibly think uh, that we truly understand this or have arrived at a place where we th- we think we know what the good rules are or not? So uh, I really think, yeah, a good uh, sort of dollop of humility is in order here. Um, but, you know, we have learned 
a lot of things. Um, we do know a lot more than we did half a decade ago. And there is still, you know, that's no excuse. <laughs> this newness is no excuse for ignoring the very real lessons um, and, and being too slow uh, to respond to things that we do know are going to crop up inevitably in a lot of these situations. You've hinted at this a little already, but you have said elsewhere that multiple times that everything is a content moderation issue. Can you explain that? Because that's a bit like saying everything is chemicals, or but it isn't. Is it? Is it really? Yeah, I think everything is a content moderation issue. I think I mean I mean two things by it. The first thing I mean is sort of what we were saying earlier about the Ukraine conflict, which is like. Anything that you could imagine in society these days um, will have a content moderation aspect to it. So because so much of our lives happen on these platforms now in these spaces, um, any sort of substantial issue of public importance, there will be a question for platforms about how they're going to deal with it on their services, whether it's a war, whether it's, you know, uh, fake news about the pandemic, whether it's, you know, some other uh, cultural event where, um, you know, someone is swearing at someone, like who knows what it is. Um, there, there's always going to be a content moderation angle, which is great for me. It means that uh, there'll never be a shortage of things for me to write or talk about. Um, but I also mean by it, like, for some reason, we focus on platforms' decisions to an outsized degree, I think. Like, we sort of make uh, a lot of uh, a, a big deal out of content moderation often and what a platform's doing about something, but we don't talk very much about the very same kind of decisions that are being made by other media organizations, many of them more important, like, for example, Fox News or um, other aspects of the Murdoch press, who are making content, quote unquote, content moderation decisions in a similar way to how platforms think about these things. We call them editorial decisions. Right. Or censorship or yeah. cancel culture or whatever. But yeah, that's that's what I have done as a producer editor every day of that kind of work. Right, exactly. And so I think there's, you know, um, everything is a content moderation problem in, in both senses in that there's something new here. There really is something new here in that we have this new thing to think about what is the online aspect of everything that happens offline. But there's also something very old here about like we're, we're talking about speech rules by powerful private actors in what they want to communicate. And we shouldn't sort of over emphasize the only the new parts when we're thinking about the, you know, our information ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I, I always thought of that when social media first started kicking off and it's all oh, how people react. But having produced for ABC Radio more than 4,000 hours of talk and talk back programming where you literally are taking random comments mm-hmm. from people mm-hmm. but live, um, yeah. <laughs> I've always wondered, do, do people kind of overthink it a bit sometimes? I mean, you know, It doesn't matter I- if it's a bit fuzzy around the edges. Um, you don't, you know, no one has a right to get on the radio. No one has a right to have a comment. And there was this feeling, you know, early in social media, everyone should have a right to comment on everything. I said, no, you don't. You're being annoying and rude. Piss off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I have a vested interest in saying, no, no one's overthinking this. This is the most important issue in the history of the world. And please, you know, cite and read my papers um, but and, and listen to my podcast on the most important history uh, issue in the history of the world and think deeply about it. But I do think you're, you're right in that we like sometimes uh, uh, 
overfreight these decisions, like in terms of like calling something censorship when it's, you know, removing someone's post from Facebook or just not accepting that there's going to be mistakes in content moderation uh, and that sometimes they're not like overt, you know, uh, malicious intent, but just like ordinary systems failures. But I do think it's too easy uh, to say no one really has a right. It's, there's no constitutional right uh, that says, you know, in the in the 18th Amendment, everyone shall have the opportunity to post on Facebook. So therefore, who cares who can post on Facebook? I think these are really important public spaces. Really important public discussions happen. Uh, it's where people sort of collectively create culture, listen to politics, uh, talk to their friends. And it would be too simple to say, why should we really care about the public interest in how these companies make their decisions? Their private companies let them do whatever they want. Before we change the topic to something really stupid, um, <laughs> looking ahead, how did you get to this worldview? How did you get into what you do now? What is the Evelyn Duex story uh, in three sentences? No, oh, maybe gosh. four. People have taken me ask, uh, taken up asking me that recently, and I really need to come up with a better answer, like some <laughs> superhero origin story where my post was taken down on Facebook, and I decided I must avenge this injustice for everyone for all time. Um, sadly, I don't have uh, an amazing story. I was like casting around for a doctoral, uh, a topic for my dissertation um, around the end of 2016, which was like peak fake news crisis time where the biggest threat to democracy um, was Macedonian teenagers that were creating fake articles about the Pope endorsing Donald Trump in the, in the good old days when that was like the biggest thing that we should be worried about. And I thought, well, this is a really interesting issue. Like what are the free speech considerations here? What are the, what are the problems here? I'm going to spend the next uh, few years of my life thinking and writing about this while I work out what the hell I want to do when I grow up. So it's not an inspiring story. It's a terrible way to decide how, or what to do a dissertation on but I, I got lucky and it happened to work out. Beautiful stuff. Well, now, as I, I, I did indicate, a total change of topic. One of the things I find fascinating about the America, which is where you're based now, uh, is this idea that there's the town meeting thing, right? That no matter what the context, whenever a decision uh, is made, um, anyone should be able to stand up and say anything they like because it's their right to free speech, God damn it! and I'm going to say my bit. Now, in that context, here's a clip from Midland in Michigan and specifically the December 2021 meeting of Midland Public Schools Board of Education. Lisa Hansen. Hi, Lisa. Welcome. Hi. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Um, I have a, a speech prepared to read regarding um, the test-to-stay program and how unconstitutional it is. But I need to address something else, not just to you as the board, um, but to parents and grandparents and taxpayers in our community. Uh, Still wrapping my brain around this a little bit, but um, yesterday I heard something um, and I was stunned. And today I am equally stunned and a little bit upset. Well, not a little bit, a lot of bit upset, furious. I, don't, I would even use that word, but 
Um, I want to talk to about the fact that, and I know this is going on nationwide, so it is not just for your, for this board, but our community needs to understand that the agenda that is being pushed through our schools is um, just my opinion, but somewhat nefarious when it comes to some of the um, activities. So let's talk about fury, furries. <laughs> it was addressed by a child uh, a couple months ago that they are put in an environment where there are kids that, are, that identify as a furry, a cat or a dog, whatever. And so yesterday I heard that at least one of our schools in our town has a, in one of the unisex bathrooms, a litter box for the kids that identify as cats. And um, I am really disturbed by that. And I, I will do some more investigation on that. I know it's going on nationwide. I know it is. It's part of the agenda that's being pushed. I don't, I don't even want to understand it. But I think that people need to be aware of it because I am really upset as a parent that my child is put in an environment like that. And, um, you know, I'm all for creativity and imagination. But when someone lives in a fantasy world and expects other people to go along with it, I have a problem with that. So I'm just putting that out there. I will investigate more. Um, but as far as the test to stay program. She's on the case. <laughs> the government does not have the right to regulate we the people. We under the people, the uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. She goes on to how masks are a breach of the Constitution. Now, for the record. And as BuzzFeed reports, no, this school district is not putting litter boxes in bathrooms <laughs> for students to identify as cats. And the Midland Public School Superintendent Michael Sharrow wrote to parents saying, it is oh, such boy. a source of disappointment that I felt the necessity to communicate this message to you. And goes on, where the fuck do these ideas come from? <laughs> Oh, boy. I mean, I, you know, The Lion King was my favorite movie as a kid, so there was a good long period oh. where I identified as a lion as a kid. Wow. So I, uh, I, I, you know, it, it may well have come from, from people like Little Evelyn uh, wandering around on agenda. all fours. That's it. I was, uh, was a real thought leader on that one. <laughs> I mean, who the hell knows where that kind of – I mean, parental panic about, like, oh, won't someone think of the children is as old as, as time – um, so that that's amazing. I had missed that one. I'm obviously not in the correct uh, corners of, of, of social media. Um, oh, but you know, well, I can fill you yeah. in a bit on where this possibly came from. Oh, great. You've got the whole trans kids in bathrooms thing uh -huh. going on in the United States at the moment. So there's a bit of a vibe that this is this is something to make that the thin end of the wedge issue that, you know, now these boys identifying as girls and girls identifying as boys and now there are kids identifying as cats and dogs and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, blah. well, <clears throat> T minus six months until that discourse arrives in Australia, I reckon then, because yeah. it's not like uh, these, are, these are the kinds of things that are great American exports, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> Well, this isn't uh, just a thing in Michigan, by the way. I do love these, so do indulge me here. Uh, here's Nebraska State Senator Bruce Bostelman on the same issue. I'm a little shocked, I guess is what I would put it. It's called something called furries. If you don't know what furries are, it's where school children dress up as animals, cats or dogs, during the school day. They meow and they bark. And they interact with their school, with the teachers in that, in this fashion. 
And now schools are wanting to put litter boxes in the schools for these children to use. How is this sanitary? I'm going to have a discussion with CEO Smith about this. This is something I think, how can schools allow this to happen? I think it's very disruptive within the school system. I think it's very disruptive within the classes. I even heard from one person here recently said that a, that a, that a student identified as a cat and wanted a litter box. And the school didn't provide the litter box, so the student went ahead and defecated on the floor. Really? Really? School administrators, what is going on? Nebraska Department of Education, what is going on? State Board of Education, what is going on? If some kids can't wear American flag to walk through the school on their shirt, and you keep them out of school, and you kick them out of school, but it's okay if, if they wear a cat costume, and that's fine, and you have a litter box for them, and that's fine. So that's Nebraska. And here's a report via KCRG in Iowa. The Carroll School District uses a tiger as its mascot, but another kind of cat is making news this week. It is bizarre. Iowa State Education Association Director Mary Jane Cobb can't believe the latest social media craziness. It's gotten so bad, Carroll School Superintendent Casey Berlau sent a letter to students and parents Monday. He writes, quote, the rumor is that our schools have litter boxes in the restrooms to accommodate individuals who are self-identifying as animals. This is simply and emphatically not true. Townspeople say social media is to blame. It's just too extreme. This, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> the ICA says the rumor started in Michigan when a parent spoke out to a school board. The ICA says it's a right-wing attempt to mock LGBTQ restroom equality. It's absurd and it's mean-spirited, and it is absolutely not the focus we should be having right now. Cobb says this harms students' mental health, and she applauds the Carroll School District for speaking out. I would just ask the people that are promulgating this myth to stop. But how do we stop this sort of thing when it's clear there is that other agenda uh, from the far right trying to make this thing about the anti-trans agenda? It's, yeah, I mean, so this I don't think actually, this is random. Oh no, it's it's not it's not random f for sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a it, this is just as a little bit of a sidebar, a great example of how everything is a content moderation issue because <laughs> during the pandemic, um, many local councils and town halls had to happen online, of course, because mm. people couldn't attend, and mm. people would get up and start sprouting misinformation and disinformation about that pandemic, and they were being broadcast on YouTube, and YouTube had this problem where like governmental processes uh, and open forums were breaching their code. COVID policies and like, should they take them down or is this an important uh, area for, for citizens to be discussing their views? And I think we should be, you know, really careful in how we, like, I, I totally understand the urge to just like shut this stuff up um, and, and get rid of it because it's such malicious and ill, uh, ill-informed and ill-motivated uh, content. But in the longer term, it's not clear that censoring that kind of stuff will really uh, nip it in the bud and 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 get it. And, and if anything, it might just um, increase the the victim mm. complex um, mm. that these people um, often um, 
of an experience. And so, you know, I also think that um, this kind of stuff uh, is unfortunately also uh, not necessarily new. And so in terms of thinking about what is the role of social media, I mean, maybe um, the furries in particular um, percolated in, in, in Facebook groups. Um, but this is a kind of moral panic uh, discourse that has happened many times before. Indeed. Uh, one thing I noticed, though, about nearly all these folks, in the America at least, uh, is they're very keen to cite the Constitution, even though mm-hmm. it's pretty clear that they don't have much of an idea of what is or is not in the Constitution. Is that a, is that a particularly American thing, you think, now that you've lived there, uh, what, a few years now? Yeah. My goodness, yes. I don't know where it comes from, but like First Amendment, uh, sorry, First Amendment fundamentalism, like the Americans' attachment to the First Amendment, which is, is the like freedom so of speech deep. one. The government yeah, shall right. not restrict your right to speak. Congress shall make no law. Uh, uh, yeah, restricting yeah. the freedom of speech and. I don't know whether where it gets into the system. Like, I don't know if it's in uh, kindergarten education or somewhere in the water supply, but like this attachment uh, to the First Amendment, cries of the First Amendment from, it's not just restricted to lawyers. It's not just, you know, um, uh, people uh, who have studied the First Amendment at some point in higher education. It's just like a deeply rooted belief that Americans have in a way that I haven't seen uh, in, in other places, certainly not in Australia. I mean, first of all, we don't have a First Amendment or a right to free speech, by the way. Um, yes. I've never heard an Australian go, hey, don't infringe my implied freedom to political communication. Um, <laughs> but uh, but maybe, you know, maybe there'll be be a day. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely a massive cultural thing here that far outstrips the reality of the First Amendment. As the furries uh, demanding cat litter trays in school bathrooms, the weirdest one you've heard so far? Oh, uh, I'm sure it's not. Um, but, you know, putting me on the spot, I'm, I'm going to under deliver. I mean, we have like the whole QAnon thing is totally crazy. Uh, yes. uh, or like the lizard people are running the government and all mm-hmm. sorts of things. I mean, there are genuinely people uh, that seem to believe this stuff um, and they will do mental gymnastics to try and make things consistent with that when they are so clearly not. <laughs> Yes, uh, regular listeners of this pod will have heard uh, people such as Ariel Bogle and Elise Thomas uh, talk about these issues before. And Cam Smith, Sexenheimer. Two of my favourite. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Elise and and Ariel, stars. The best. Yes, no, uh, two of my favourite researchers and and, uh, commentators on on this stuff. (laughs) Must watch. And... And quite frankly, it provides endless fodder for the podcast. It saves me having to think of anything sensible to talk about. Yes, it's it's uh, thank like a full employment program for uh, academics and researchers and podcasters and journalists. Um, is uh, you know that is one upside from our current uh, of our current conspiracy minded disinformation uh, era, which is the perfect opportunity to take a quick break and tell you about what's coming up in coming weeks. If you follow me on the Twitter and pay attention to every single thing that I say, and and why wouldn't you, you will know that I have been praising the Australian podcast documentary series Motherlode. Because back in the 1980s and 1990s, Australia, and in particular Melbourne, 
was one of the key places from which the hacking scene emerged. Uh, Julian Assange was one of the key figures to emerge from that, but there were key people before him, and Motherload talks about all those things. Well, in the next episode of this podcast, uh, at least the next to be recorded, Greg Mueller, uh, the producer of Motherload, uh, and the journalist who did that, will be my special guest. So if you have uh, trigger words or a conversation topic uh, to, uh, to throw into that, please get them to me by this coming Tuesday, the 5th of April, at 6pm Australian Eastern Standard Time, which is going to be, isn't it? Uh, And I'll put them in. Uh, For this episode, I want to say thank you to the most generous, uh, generous, most generous Wilfred Jakshik, who uh, went to 9pmedic.com slash tip, which uh, was a very good thing for him to do. You can do that too, and I'll remind you in just a second. Uh, But of course, for this entire series, it's thanks to all the people who contributed to the 9pm Autumn Series 2022 crowdfunding campaign. Uh, I have listed you all on the website uh, and will do uh, for the remaining episodes of this series. This time, let's let's thank a few people up the, the upper end of the list. Christopher Neal, thank you so much for buying yourself a conversation topic. Right up the top there, Christopher has been a, a supporter for a while now and I'm looking forward to see what conversation topic he chooses. Uh, and choosing three trigger words... Can I say thank you to Alana Mitchell, John Lindsay, Jonathan Ferguson, Peter Leverdink, Philip Merrick, Sheepy, and one person uh, who chooses to remain anonymous. Some of those names I'm sure you'll recognise. Uh, and uh, another four people I'd like to thank uh, who've chosen to have no reward at all, even though they were some of the more generous people. So thank you so much to all of those people, and to everyone else, I will list you uh, the others uh, in other categories in coming episodes. Uh, if you too would like to support this podcast and my uh, my other horrible, horrible activities, uh, please go to the 9pmedic.com slash tip. That is the 9pmedic.com slash tip. Right, Evelyn, it is time for a trigger word or two. This is the glass jar of transparency. On the, on the edge of my uh, wardrobe floor. <laughs> <laughs> the choice of podcasts. Okay, unwrapping this piece of paper. From Sheepy. Hello, Sheepy. Sheepy is a regular contributor and also remembers to send in a, a constant supply of words. Unicorn chaser. Oh, boy. Um, well, uh, I believe unicorns in Silicon Valley are like what a billion dollar company, billion dollar or something companies, like that. Yeah. And so that is the uh, the immediate thing that comes to mind is like basically, uh, many of the people that I talk to on a day to day basis are all unicorn chasers trying to find the next uh, massive startup uh, that's going to challenge our incumbents, which is nowhere near as colorful or as interesting as other possible answers to that question, uh, to that trigger word. Well, there are, yes, other kinds of unicorns are are more colourful, obviously. But here's the thing. The the platforms are all wanting to be unicorns. When anyone starts up a social network, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or Donald Trump, they want to be the next big thing. Now, 
Mm-hmm. Facebook is the big current thing. Twitter is a slightly smaller big current thing, etc., etc., etc. But that's it. The, the, how much does having your eyes on that billion-dollar valuation affect how you approach what you do? Oh, completely. I mean, this is the famous Silicon Valley ethos of, you know, uh, after that old Facebook uh, slogan, move fast and break things. I mean, Mm. so much of the problems that we are seeing are uh, a creation of this growth at all costs mindset. I mean, particularly in developing countries where these platforms are expanding and going into them without producing any of the infrastructure that they might need to make their companies and their products safe in those environments, like not even getting content moderators that speak the languages or like this is the story in Myanmar where Facebook was used to fuel a genocide. Um, it's it's truly oh, oh, that, because of oh, that little yeah, thing. Yeah. That little thing. Uh, you know, um, whoops. Um, yeah, it's 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 kind of um, horrifying uh, how mm. much growth and the pursuit of profits has uh, dictated these decisions. Can we ever change that? Can we really ever change that though? I mean uh, growth at all costs capitalism is I mean, it, it was the foundation of America for a long period, but that is the, the Silicon Valley target, right? That is what all, well, scare quotes, all the people who get into tech are dreaming of. It isn't, obviously, and otherwise you and I would be billionaires by now because we're, yeah. we're some of the smart ones. We, we are ethical. Um, oh, there's another whole rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. Um, we are... Starting to see, and certainly in Australia, is leading some of this, the trying to rein in the big platforms. Whether it works or not is another question, but we, we've just had another bunch of laws um, appear. Mm-hmm. Like in, in the last 24 hours, another one dropped, or at least was passed by Parliament. Um, Britain follows US. Will, will the US ever rein in this? Because we will get the screechy First Amendment thing happening. And then it really is the government trying to stop you. Yeah. Um, you know, I barely know a regulator in the world right now that's not trying to come up with something to rein in these platforms. You know, when I first started my dissertation uh, six years ago, um, I had this idea of, you know, doing a dissertation on the global regulation of online speech. Uh, and maybe at the time that was a somewhat uh, achievable goal. But as the years have gone on and basically every country is now doing something to try and deal with this problem like I've had to narrow and narrow and narrow my scope like any good doctoral student until I'm like dealing with the regulation of online speech in Cambridge Massachusetts from 16th to 18th of July 2021 right because there's just so much going on in this space um and whether it will work or not I mean they're really trying like uh, Australia um you know is 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 a, a bit of a fumbling oaf in this in this area but like Europe is is really enacting some huge legislative packages so you're right to be skeptical that the United States might ever be able to come to the table because the first amendment constraints are so difficult but also you know Congress can barely agree on like what time lunch should be let alone mm. anything uh, as difficult as this so i don't know about the United States but certainly we're seeing stuff coming out from other countries and Europe is a real uh, is is leading the charge here Thank you, Sheepy, for that little thread. That see, that's what trigger words are about. You never know. What yeah, might I know. Come out. Sorry to always, you know, find a way to make it so but so about serious content and moderation. technical and about content moderation. I know. I know. All right. Well, I'm going to do a second one because we right. do have just enough time. And 
Uh-oh. It's from Sheep. No, it's from Sheepy again. Oh, okay. Go no, Sheepy. That's why I laugh. There's there's one other person, Peter Leverdink, who is efficient, and so we keep pulling theirs out. Right. Uh, but this one's better. Timeline cleanse. Oh, I mean, I, I, that obviously I can make a content moderation issue again. Um, <laughs> what makes a good timeline cleanse? I mean, yeah. uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone was posting their sourdoughs. You remember that? Um, oh, yes. I, sourdough recipes. I, I, I don't know whatever happened to those sourdoughs. Um, or what's your favorite timeline cleanse that you uh, see when you wake up in the morning? Uh, really, it's actually generally really stupid observations about politics. Yeah. Um, some of the, the, the mad... QAnon or Patriot Watch stuff. Uh, I mean, it cheers me up because I go, no matter no matter how many dumb mis- mistakes I make today, I'm not going to be that dumb. Yeah. Um, th- there was a there was a lovely one this morning though. Um, I, I, mean, I, don't, I don't really do cats and dogs stuff, but there was a good one this morning where someone was out walking their dog at the dog park or whatever and saw another person, a woman with her dog, and when the dog did a poo. She scooped up and bagged the poo and then handed the bag to the dog and the dog ran up to the trash can no and way. put it in. But the dog sort of missed and then she just oh. shouted, fix it, and the dog realised it missed and put it back. No way. That's, yeah. that's very impressive. Uh, I, I See, that's the kind of content, um, dogs cleaning up poo, that, you know, how does that not cleanse your timeline? That's that's what we all want to see when we wake it, up in the morning. It, exactly. And and uh, another timeline cleanse is uh, a guy who uses the Twitter handle Airminded, A-I-R-M-I-N-D-E-D, who is mm-hmm. feeding lots of cues into an AI image maker of science fiction illustrators and... Oh, and yes, I've seen those. those yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just brilliant. It, you know, he, he's oh, – anyway, I'll link to him. Anyway, thank you, Sheepy. There's some timeline cleansers, and I might mention some others uh, at the end of the pod once, once I've let Evelyn go and have her evening to herself. Now – the Australian election is going to be announced Uh-oh. any day now, and it's at most uh-huh. seven weeks away. Now, I'm not going to ask you political questions about Australia. That would be that would be cruel and unfair uh, from from a distance. But how how should we handle things when at least one significant player, in this case the United Australia Party, Clive Palmer, spending mm-hmm. tens of millions of dollars on advertising? Yeah, and. They're the ones distributing the misinformation. Um, what do we do? And before you answer, I'll play you a grab. The party's purported leader, Craig Kelly, organised a protest outside oh, Parliament House the other day. I'm sorry. You don't have to hear Craig <laughs> Kelly. It's, go- it's worse than listening to Craig Kelly. This is one of the speakers he organised who has, oh, should we say, no. unorthodox views about the flag. And I notice there's a lot of people here today wandering around with the red and the blue flags. That piece of shit that's in the corner of that flag is the Union Jack, the Union of Jacob. It represents three, or it is three, Hebrew tribal flags. And if you're worried about standing under the Jews and what they represent, that's what you're standing under when you carry that flag. Okay? The Union of Jacob flag. Jewish tribes. 
This is such a depressing note to end on. Why are we doing this? I hadn't heard that one. Uh, wow. <laughs> um, yes, that is a bad mood. Look, all right, but how do we counter that? Are we smart enough as a nation, as a people, as a polity to either not fall for it or, or I, I don't know. I, it is a bad one to end on, isn't it? But here we are. Oh, boy. This yeah, is our world. I mean, I- I desperately want the answer to be yes, and I think that long term it's got to be like surely uh, that can't be the you know uh, the the world we end up in um, where we just lose all uh, connection to reality. It's a really difficult thing though to do when like we just fall back on on second best. We're asking these private American companies uh, to police Australian politicians in a way that the Australian politicians, like, wouldn't it just be great if there could be, like, a universal bipartisan condemnation of this nonsense uh, and mm. also condemnation across uh, journalists and, and media checking this kind of stuff? And then we wouldn't need, like, uh, Mark Zuckerberg to come to Australia's rescue with a with a proper um, misinformation policy. Um, but it's, 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 yeah, it's just depressing. Uh, thank you for, for you know, sending me off into my evening on, on that note. Well, that is the perfect note to end on. Well, my pleasure, <laughs> Evelyn Dewick, and thank Great. you so much for joining me down this rabbit hole. My, my pleasure. It really has been fun. Thank you. <laughs> well, wasn't that fabulous? That was a lot of fun. Before we go, um, a quick mention of some stories we didn't get time to talk about, but which I've linked to on the website. First, uh, news this week that Facebook actually paid a Republican strategy firm to malign TikTok. According to the Washington Post, the company targeted victory, or I like the name, targeted victory. Uh, they pushed local operatives around the country, uh, the United States, to boost messages calling TikTok a threat to American children. Uh, and one campaign director said the dream would be to get stories with headlines like, from dancers to danger. Ooh, and uh, also about propaganda. Uh, Ukrainian ad agencies are joining the propaganda war. Uh, there was one Kiev-based uh, agency called Banda, B-A-N-D-A. Uh, that's only one of a number of ad agencies creating uh, ads to raise global awareness of and support for Ukraine. I've linked to that story and also to one of their ads on YouTube, which is really... Well done. And finally, sports bet. Yes, I have been tracking the sports betting uh, on on the forthcoming federal election. Things really have settled down. Uh, again, uh, I've said that the the price for a Labor win has been between $1.30 and $1.35 for weeks now, and it's the same today as I say these words out of my mouth on the afternoon of uh, Friday, the 1st of April, $1.33 for a Labor win, $3.10 coalition win, any other result, 81 That's interesting because that has been $41 thus far. Yeah, let's let's be real. Uh, it's it's not going to be anything else. We will track that as the election gets closer, and I dare say we will talk about politics. 
that's all the edict for now. All the links, all the credits, all of that stuff's over at the 9pmedict.com and go to slash tip if you want to tip. I'd be most grateful if you did that. The next episode will be with Greg Mueller talking about motherload and hacking. Until then, I'm Stilgarian. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.